What's up, guys? Welcome back to the HD Movement Podcast. This episode was recorded through Anchor. Anchor is a free online website that lets you record your podcast straight from your computer or phone. It's very easy to use. I definitely recommend it. So if you want, you can go download the free Anchor app at anchor.fm to get started. What's up, guys? Today we have Corporate Machiavelli. So Corporate Machiavelli is an anonymous individual that I connected with on Twitter. And he speaks about Machiavellianism. Um, I'm just going to read you his Twitter bio because that's the reason I reached out to him to do this podcast. I thought it was very interesting. It says Machiavellianism in the modern world. 55 essays on website, terminally ill, and then this is my legacy. So he would like to remain anonymous. So for the sake of this conversation, I'm just going to refer to him as Bob. <laughs> so what's up, Bob? What's up, Hamdi? Hamdi, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here with you. Yeah, man. It's, it's an honor to have you on the show. Um, looking, looking forward to talking with you. Of course. It's good to be here. So, so tell me a little bit uh, about your bio. I, I know you popped up on Twitter about a month ago. And you've exploded since then. You you have almost ten thousand followers now. So what what what's going on here? Yes. So uh, m- many of those followers I have thanks to you. You were one of the first people to uh, retweet me and whatnot. Uh, re- regarding the bio that you just read, so yes, it is uh, unfortunately the case that my physical health is uh, not what it used to be, but it's not in great shape. So. I will be around for a while, but not forever. So um, the doctors are telling me at this point that I have anywhere between three months to three years. But I realize that's a, a very big range, right? So um, three months would be very unlucky, though. I'll probably be around for a year or two. So uh, I do have a, I'm not operating on minutes or hours, I'm operating on months and years. So I do have time. Um, Regarding the rest of the bio, at the beginning of it, you read, it's uh, Machiavellianism in the modern world, right? So throughout uh, human history and throughout, say, just even the past few years, there have been a lot of different books written about people skills and stuff. And so uh, the phrases people skills, social skills, uh, Machiavellianism, and cunning those four phrases all refer to the same thing. It's just that people skills and social skills, those phrases have a connotation of being positive. Uh, And the phrases Machiavellianism and cunning have a connotation of being uh, negative or even evil. Um, but, But the difference between those four things is just one of connotation, not one of actual meaning, right? So People skills and social skills are a nice way of saying it. Machiavellianism or cunning is a mean way of saying it, but uh, it's the same thing. Um, Expanding on that, so most people know who Machiavelli was. He was a 
a courtier around several hundred years ago. Uh, I believe it was in the 1600s. And he wrote a book called The Prince. Um, and th that book, you could think of it as, you know, how to be an effective dictator style king in uh, medieval Europe. Um, so it, Machiavelli's book, The Prince, is, uh, it has lots of you know, valuable information and whatnot, but it is a bit outdated, right? If you're a modern day 21st century American person walking around and you read The Prince, it's probably not going to be directly applicable to your life, if that makes sense. Um, so the, the reason I created my writings was with the hope that it would be on the same topic as Machiavelli's book, The Prince, but a bit more uh, readily available for and applicable to just a modern day person walking around in the 21st century if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So I, I came across Machiavelli um, actually from Twitter. I mean, I've heard his name before, but never really looked into it as much as I did now. And after finding accounts like yours, I actually got the book, The Prince, and started reading it. And I, I do see your point that, you know, a 25-year-old guy reading it in New York City is not really going to be able to apply it as much so that's right so yeah, maybe yeah. new york city in the year like 1800 but but not in the year 2020 you know yeah. where we have computers and the internet and 21st century technology and whatnot yeah all right yeah yeah so you were trying to make kind of right on that same information but more modernized is what you're saying that's right so it's the um like how do I say this? Uh, medicine has existed for the past like three or 4,000 years, mm -hmm. right? in the sense that we've always had doctors and whatnot treating disease and injuries. But as time has gone on, medicine has changed and it's gotten a lot better, right? Yep. So the medical practices of 2020 are a lot better than what they had back in the 1600s. Um, so it's, uh, it's analogous with people skills or Machiavellianism where, you know, manipulation has been around since the dawn of man, but the, the strategies and tactics that are applicable have changed over time. And they've also gotten more advanced and I'd say more complicated as time has gone on, just because uh, our environment has gotten more complicated, right? So if you live in a society where 99% of people are farmers, right? And they just spend their days tilling the land. Uh, the manipulations you have to be able to execute to survive or succeed in that environment. Uh, there's a short list of manipulations you need to be able to pull off and they're all pretty simple. But now that we're living in a world where like 1% of Americans are farmers, right? They're manufacturing food. And we have like 30% of people are working with computers, they have white collar jobs. Some people have blue collar jobs. You know, the, the, the point being that the environment has gotten more complicated as time has gone on. So the manipulations you have to be capable to execute, not to succeed, just to survive, right? Those manipulations have gotten more complicated, right? Yeah. So there's a lot, lot to unpack here. Let's, let's uh, roll back a bit. When, sure. you say, sure. when you say Machiavellianism, so when you look up that term, it says, mm. the definition says something along the lines of 
manipulating people into getting the outcome that you want. Is that, is that the definition that you would say is accurate for it? Yes, that would be a fair definition. So you're, you're manipulating, it's essentially having good people skills, right? Okay. Just you're, you're good at charming people. You're good at persuading people. Uh, you're good at reading people's body language and vocal tonality accurately. Um, you can read subtext, right? So it's not a, I understand the term as a connotation of evil, but it, it shouldn't, right? It's a, new, it's a skill and it, it's morally neutral in the sense that you could use it for good or for evil, right? So if you were to use what you know about people's skills to talk old people into handing over their life savings and then you steal their life savings because you're a, say you're a con man like uh, Jordan Belford, mm -hmm. uh, the main character in The Wolf of Wall Street, right? That, that would obviously be using what you know about people's skills slash Machiavellianism uh, for evil. Um, on the other hand, there are say, uh, you know, psychiatrists or social workers who deal with say 18 year olds who are for whatever reason, suicidal, right? And it's essentially their job to talk the young person out of carrying out suicide. Right, and most of them are very successful at this. So they're using what they know about manipulation for good, right? Yeah, yeah. So the skill is neutral and then how you decide to use it is where, where that comes from. I, I, yeah. I, I can see where the connotation comes from. So when you think about someone that has high cunning or high people skills, they're usually in the context of manipulating people in a negative light. Like you don't see people out there manipulating people <laughs> for, for good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I, I would say, um, yeah, I, unfortunately you're correct. Yeah. Right. I, unfortunately you're correct. So it's, um, that is unfortunate. It's, uh, it's a little bit like a, a gun or a pistol. Yeah, like it, is, yeah. it is a tool. It should be neutral, but yeah, I do understand that guns have a, for most people on the planet, a very negative connotation, right? We instinctively associate them with violence mm -hmm. and with good reason, right? Yeah. So why do you think that is, that when someone has the skill that mm -hmm. they are more likely to use it in an evil way versus in evil. a good way? So, I, well... <laughs> That's big, not a big, big question. Yeah, know, loaded question. Very difficult question. Um, no, part of it I do think is the a selection bias of we remember negative events more vividly than positive events, right? And that's a survival thing because if if a thing is negative, if a thing is positive and you fail to remember it, what will happen to you? Well, nothing. If a thing is negative and you fail to remember it, that could get you killed, right? Back when we're, you know, living in hunter-gatherer tribes or whatever. So we, we have a bias of remembering the negative more vividly than the positive, right? So that, that could be it, the reason we associate it with evil. Um, the, another reason could just be that the people on the planet who are the best at manipulating other humans are disproportionately uh, very intelligent men who are psychopathic. Um, and so 
something you find with psychopaths, particularly the, uh, the intelligent ones, right? Not the dumb ones is psychopathy just means that, um, they lack amygdalic function. The, the amygdala is a part of the human brain. And in psychopaths, you find that their amygdala is either completely lacking in functionality, or it's just less active than the amygdala of a normal person. And the effect of that is they experience zero compassion and zero fear, right? So lack of fear is not necessarily an evil thing, um, but lack of compassion is, right? So it, it, and another thing that correlates with psychopathy is uh, high cunning, right? Psychopaths tend to be very cunning individuals. Um, they're better than average at reading body language and vocal tonality and charming people and whatnot. So it, it could be that the people who are the best at cunning are disproportionately psychopathic men uh, and they are evil. And so that's why we associate people skills or Machiavellianism with evil, right? It could just be that sampling bias. Yeah. So, so there's, you know, obviously this is not a fact, but there's a chance that with, with high social skills comes low compassion is what you're saying. I, not exactly. What, what I'm saying is that there's a group of people called psychopathic men Okay. Okay. I and got you. They're the ones who they are extremely low compassion and extremely high cunning. So, so th there is a correlation with them, uh, with with the population in general, right? Like psychologically normal people, no mental disorders or anything. I'd say the correlation between cunning and compassion is basically zero, right? Um, yeah, and something that's notable is that compassion can be measured with the big five personality trait agreeableness um yeah and what you will find is that women on average rank higher than men on agreeableness slash compassion right so you think okay well women are on average more compassionate than men okay are women on average less cunning than men well, no, women actually rank higher than men on cunning on average, right? So if you, it's very weird. So if you look at normal men and normal women, you'll find the women on average rank higher on compassion and they also rank on average higher on cunning. So there might in some weird way be a slightly positive correlation between cunning and compassion. I apologize, did what I just said make sense? Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> All right, so let me ask you this. Do you think an individual can learn these social skills or Machiavellianism and you know, improve them significantly? Or do you think this is something that they're kind of born with? Mm. So I, I would say there is some ceiling on how good you can get at it if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. Uh, I, I'm not going to give the false promise of telling people with practice, you can become one of the best on the planet. Probably you can't. Um, every trait that our psychometricians, the people who look at things in psychology, they can be measured objectively with numbers. 
like every trait is at least somewhat genetic, right? So I'm not going to tell you there's no genetic component, but I would say there's probably some genetically imposed ceiling on how good you can get with practice. But I would say 100% of people can get better with practice, right? Yeah. So it, it's a little bit like um, swimming. So if you want to be one of the best swimmers on the planet, like you want to get to the Olympics and be racing against a guy like Michael Phelps, you do need certainly gen certain genetically given advantages. But even if you weren't given those genetic advantages, you can still learn how to swim, right? And you can certainly get good enough at swimming such that, you know, if, we, if you fall out of a boat into the middle of a river, instead of drowning, you can just swim to the riverbank and save yourself, right? So with cunning, not, right, not everyone listening to this is going to be able to get good enough at people skills such that they can run for a seat in the US Senate and win, right? That not everyone's gonna be an elite level politician, but you can all become good enough such that you can uh, manage the immediate affairs in your life effectively. Yeah, so and enough to improve your life situation a little bit versus yeah. oh or yeah. significantly versus significantly. you know actually going somewhere with it that's yeah so you you don't you you probably don't need to be good enough at swimming to like make it to the olympics that's not your concern but you do need to be good enough at swimming such that if you're on a boat in a river and you randomly fall out we don't want it to be you're going to instantly drown we want it to be you can like tread water for two minutes while we I don't know, get a life raft out for you or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right? that makes sense. You, you don't need to be good enough at cunning such that you can run for president of the United States and win, right? Yeah. But you do need to be good enough such that uh, you can make it through a job interview, right? You can play office politics effectively. You can uh, maintain a romantic relationship with a woman without having it blow up, right? So, you, you know, you don't have to be elite to have an enjoyable life. You just have to be moderately good. Okay, yeah, that makes sense for sure. So let's say someone that doesn't know anything about this stuff. Mm. How does one acquire these skills or learn about them? <laughs> or, you know, like where do they go to learn this or, you know, study it or even find out that it exists? Because sure. before I jumped on Twitter earlier this year, I did know it exists, but I did not know the depth that it was out there and the amount of information that was out there and the books that exist um, are crazy now. So tell, yeah. tell us something like, let's say someone doesn't know anything, like where mm. do they start? Okay. So I'm going to assume that if a person has listened this far into the conversation, they have a level of interest in this sort of stuff that is above average, right? Um, so I would say for any skill, if you want to get good at it, you should probably spend 20% of your time with it reading about it and 80% of your time with it actually practicing it, right? So if you want to learn how to swim, you're not going to just spend a hundred hours reading about swimming without actually getting into the water, right? That's probably not going to help you. Um, so I would say with people skills, uh, don't spend all your time just reading about it. I'd say actually spend like a minority of your time reading about it. Spend most of your time actually 
interacting with people in the real world, mm -hmm. right? And practicing whatever you read about, right? Because that's the only way you're going to actually get good at it. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of in terms of what books to read, um, so I will. I'm giving a very short list, just those things that I think are the most important. Um, so starting with number one, shameless plug, go to uh, corpandmonkeyvelly.com, uh, read the articles there. Those are tailored to be applicable to most people living in a first world country in the 21st century. Um, a second source would be Robert Greene's book, The 48 Laws of Power. Um, that's, yeah, I'd, I'd say probably the single best book on the topic. And a third book would be a book called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Um, that's pretty famous, not quite as famous as The 48 Laws of Power, but it, The 48 Laws of Power will give you essentially 48 general guidelines, not rock solid laws for dealing with other people. And Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, uh, will give you just a list of principles about social psychology you ought to be aware of. Okay. I would give those three as, uh, if a person has not, they haven't read any books about this sort of thing before, right? Like those three sources, CorbettMachiavelli.com, The 48 Laws of Power, and Cialdini's book, Influence. So those are the three things you, you should uh, start off reading. Okay. I'll include uh, those three resources in the show notes, by the way. Um, oh, sure. Sure. So, so basically what you're saying is get those books, uh, read that website, and you know, take the knowledge you, you found there and apply it in the real world 80% of the time. Yes. And just yes. practice, practice, practice. Pre practice. And I would also say um, w the best way to do it would be, and this applies to most skills, not just people's skills, would be um, spend a solid 20 hours doing thorough reading on it. And then after that 20th hour mark is hit, spend 80% of your time not reading, just real world practice, and 20% of your time reading, if that makes sense. I I'd start off with 20 hours of hardcore reading just to get a good overview of the subject so that you're not going into action with a blindfold on, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. All right. So let's say someone does do this. Um, you know, obviously this kind of thing can help you in business and in, in relationships, um, you know, climbing up your, your career ladder, whatever that is. Yes. So what, what are some of the benefits that, that you can see from, from, <laughs> from this stuff. Hmm. So, uh, without getting too specific, right. I would say, um, yeah. Are you asking about my own life or are you asking just if, if you would like to share by your own life? Yeah, that would be great. If not, um, you know, just give us, sure. You know, you could use me as an example, like what, what could I get from it? Sure. So, in my own life, when I finished my time at university and went into the corporate world and whatnot, um, I thought that what you need to do to succeed in the corporate world is the same as what you need to succeed at university. 
which is basically just show up on time, do your work, do it well, and you know, inevitably you will just be promoted up the corporate hierarchy, right? And in school, you would have been given A's or good grades or whatnot, right? And so that view, uh, it, was it was very naive, right? And it was inaccurate, but uh, my 21, 22 year old self who thought that, I'd say most 21 or 22 year olds think this, right? Um, they go to high school, they go to college, they're reasonably good at whatever they're studying. And they think, you know, if I'm smart and I work hard in the corporate world, I will succeed just like I did in school. Um, and unfortunately that is not reality, right? I'd say in the corporate world, being good at your job, right? Whatever your job function is, say being an engineer, being a lawyer, being an accountant, that's 50% of what you need to do to get promoted. The other 50% is you have to be very good at playing office politics, right? So giving a, a brief bullet point list of how to be good at office politics, I'd say the first thing you need to do is um, you need to be aware of every human being who works in your physical office. Um, and you need to be able to figure out which of your superiors wield the power to decide whether you get promoted or fired. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. So let's say, sake of argument, you went to college, you went to law school, you get out of law school, and now you're an associate at a big name law firm in New York City. Right. So the bottom ranked people are junior associates, above them are senior associates, above them are junior partners, and above them are senior partners, right? Um, so if you're a junior associate, you walk in the, in the law from day one, within the first 30 days, you need to figure out among the junior and the senior partners, you, will, you can learn their job titles just by looking at LinkedIn or their business cards, right? That's not difficult information to get, but the difficult information is, you need to figure out which one of them have uh, clout or status within the office. And like they wield the power to say that you, Bob or Michael or whoever you are, like you will be promoted or you will be fired, right? So figure out who your critical superiors are and get them to like you. Um, now in terms of how to figure out who they are, that will vary by industry, right? So. I'd say if you work in investment banking or whatever, look at which senior bankers are generating most revenue for the bank. They most likely are the ones who wield the most power in terms of making decisions about which junior bankers are gonna get promoted or not, right? Um, in terms of how to make them like you, uh, you know, there, I could <laughs> probably talk for you with you for hours about just how to be likable in general, but specifically for this, I'd say, you're often going to be inundated with work that needs to be done from like four or five different people. So you should put effort into the work you do for them uh, to the degree that they matter for deciding whether or not you're promoted, right? So if a very senior person who is well-liked within the office and who has power sends something to you, a piece of work that needs to be done, you should get it done fast 
and you should give them A plus level work. We're like pour all your energy into that thing, do it well and do it fast. Um, if a slightly more junior person sends work to you that they need done, or if it's a senior person who you know for whatever reason doesn't have that much political clout, um, you should not give them A plus work and you should not do it for them immediately. You should delay that, delay their work if you have to, and you should be giving them A minus level work, right? Because you can't give them B minus or C minus level work, right? Don't let the work you do for them be trash, otherwise that could get you fired. But you should be discriminating between your superiors in terms of how much energy you pour into getting their work done fast and how much energy you pour into getting it done well. Did that make sense? Yes. So essentially, one, knowing, knowing there's a game being played. Yeah, because... knowing, knowing which superiors are critical and which are not so critical. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And responding appropriately. Like if, if you treat your superiors as if they're all equally important, um, well, I would tell you that's not really possible. It's physically impossible because very often two superiors who are both of official, they have the same rank officially, right? Say they're both senior partners at the law firm, right? You're going to have many situations where both of them send you something that needs to be done within a 30 second period, right? They both hit your email inbox and they both say, urgent, do this thing right now. Okay. Now, is it physically possible for you to do both of those things at the same time? No. So you have to make a choice, which one is going to get the work done first and which one is going to come second, right? So w whether you want to or not, you are going to be making this decision. The only question is when you make that decision, is it going to be very carefully thought out or is it going to be something you did on a whim that you did not think through? Yeah. Apologies if I went overboard on you. No, 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 it's good. Um, I'm just, I'm just taking it all in. So basically to, to kind of conclude what you were saying is one, you have to know that there is a game being played. Like you said, not, not just go in, work hard and keep your head down like you did in university and hope for the best. You have to know what's going on Two, You have to know how to navigate the game so that you can, you know, climb the ranks and, end up on top yes 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 so i i can't it's impossible for me or anyone to give a step-by-step -step guide for how to go from being an intern to being a full-time employee with an entry-level position of course because to getting promoted to a medium position to being promoted to being a c-suite level executive right there is no step-by-step -step guide for that but yeah there, there are general guidelines that will help you. Right? Yeah, because it's going to be very context-based, like based on the person and the situation. It's not going to be the same for everyone, although there may be certain similar steps that people will have to take, but yes. it's, it's going to be very, it's going to vary from person to person. Yes, so the one thing I would say is identifying who, which superiors are critical and which are not critical and responding appropriately. Yeah. Um, until you are personally the CEO of the company, that is always going to be something you have to do, right? And even if you're the CEO, you still have to follow orders or suggestions given to you by board members. Yeah. Right? So e 
this will always apply all the way from being an intern to being a CEO, right? Okay. So let me ask you this. What would you say are the most important people skills or mm. Machiavellian traits <laughs> that you need? Like, you know, you said, you said to practice, read and practice and all this. Yes. But what are the most important things you would suggest to someone to practice in order to thrive with, with this uh, personality trait? Sure. Or these characteristics? I, I would say um, cunning or people skills can be broken down into many different sub facets. Um, and the most important facet for our modern world is going to be uh, charm. I call it charm or most mainstream psychologists will call it likability. Basically the, the ability to make people like you, right? So if you go to a job interview, uh, the number one thing you need to do to get hired is make the interviewer perceive you are likable, right? So job interviews do not select for competence. They select for likability. Uh, despite what hiring managers might tell you. Uh, the correlation between competence in a job and ability to succeed in job interviews is zero for most job functions. Um, you know, if you want to succeed in office politics, right, beyond just being good at your work, there's that obviously, but the number one thing you need to do is make your superiors like you. Right? Ideally, all of them like you, but at minimum, the critical ones who wield power over making decisions about who gets promoted or not, they need to like you, right? So the, the main facet of cunning you need to be really good at is charm slash likability. Um, any thoughts, Andy? Um, No, no, uh, you, you, can, you can continue. <laughs> okay, so, so now in terms of how to do that, there is an essay on the Corporate Machiavelli website it's issue 21. It's called Charm Machiavellian Social Competency. And it's a very long essay detailing out different things you could do to make people like you. Um, so that, that essay could take you like 20 minutes to read. I'm going to give a quick, like 60 second overview of the most important things. Uh, the first thing is going to be be extremely good looking. But, and I realize that piece of advice is going to be very uh, dissatisfying to most people because it, it sounds like, you know, Bob, how do I change that? Well, good looking people are perceived as being more likable than ugly people, right? And th this isn't, everyone knows that being good looking will help you on the dating market, right? Like if you're a man who's good looking, uh, the probability any single woman will want to be with you is higher. Right. Um, but it, being good looking also helps in non dating or non romantic contexts. Right. So uh, good looking men are more likely to be hired following a job interview than ugly men. And good looking men are more likely to be promoted up the corporate hierarchy. Right. Um, so good looking engineers are given better performance reviews than ugly engineers. Now, I assure you, there is no. Being good looking is not actually going to make you better at doing engineering work, right? It just makes, it just causes the people reviewing your work to view you as being 
to view you more positively, right? Yeah. And so in terms of optimizing your physical attractiveness, um, there, is a, there is actually a lot you can do, right? So uh, this is gonna sound like cliche advice, but it is important, you know, uh, take a shower, get a good haircut, hit the gym, uh, don't be fat, right? Don't eat a bunch of sugar, don't drink a bunch of alcohol, you know, so do not be overweight. Uh, you don't have to be super muscular like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just be in decent shape. Have a haircut. Uh, get clothes that fit you well. Uh, get a woman to advise you on this. Right? Don't take fashion advice from men. Uh, most men do not have very good fashion senses. Listen to uh, you know, psychologically normal women and narcissistic men tend to have very good taste so far as fashion is concerned. So go shopping and bring one of them with you. Um, th there is, you, you know, I realize you didn't bring me here to be a fashion consultant, but th there is a lot you can do to make yourself more physically attractive that you have not already done, right? Or at least most modern day Americans are going to be in that category, whether they're male or female. So yeah, I would say most men who are in the bottom 20% of physical attractiveness, right? Meaning uh, they're, they're kind of ugly, right? Most of them can make it to the top 20% of physical attractiveness, right? So not all of us can be Brad Pitt or George Clooney where we're 99th percentile good looking, but we can all, most men can get to the 80th percentile, right? Most of them from where they are now, they could be significantly improved and get to the point where they are above average in good lookingness. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I definitely think that there's a lot you can do to, to look better, obviously. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's a, that's a matter that I'm not an expert on. Right. So it's, yeah. it's hard for me to give good in-depth advice on that. It's just general advice of, yeah, Anything that can be done to make you look better, do it because it will help you. Um, is there, like, is this something that's proven or is this something that you experienced, mm. like you, you saw in your personal life mm. or is this something that you just noticed? Sure. So there is, um, I have noticed it, but the reason I know it is not because I just noticed it. It's um, there is data to support this. Okay. And to give you one source that will go more in depth on this of good looking people being viewed more positively than ugly people. Uh, the book I mentioned before influence by Robert Cialdini, mm -hmm. his book, it covers many different things. This is one of the things it covers. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's, uh, you know, it's a controversial take, especially in well, the, U a, the U.S. in 2020 where yeah, you can't I, I say anything. Even, I wouldn't <laughs> even say it's controversial. I just say it's bad. I mean, I, I understand yeah. nobody, nobody wants this to be true, right? No, uh, yeah. no, no CEO wants to think that we've been hiring people to be engineers, not on the basis of how good are they at engineering, but rather on the basis of like, how good looking are they, right? No CEO wants to think that, but in almost every corporation, unfortunately, that is largely yeah. true. I kind of have a theory on why that happens. 
I didn't speak about it. I tweeted about this once. I didn't speak about it in business terms or in corporate world terms. I spoke about it in like the male female dynamic. And what I tweeted about was you're more attractive when you're fit because, <laughs> because yeah. we're biologically um, looking for a healthier meat. So through yeah. evolution, you, you wanted to look for a healthier mate to pass on your offspring. Yes. Or and not even a, I apologize for interrupting you. No, it's okay. But going beyond mating, like someone to sleep with. If it's just. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Say, say that you're a man. Uh, you're not a homosexual, right? You're only interested in women, but like you're a man, you're a leader in a tribe, right? And you're selecting young men who are going to join you for a hunting party, right? Like you're going to, go out into the wilderness with them, hopefully find the woolly mammoth, kill it, and bring the woolly mammoth back so that you and the tribe can eat, right? Um, if you selected young men on the basis of how good looking they are, that would actually be a good idea. You'd be, because being good looking correlates with good health and good health correlates with, oh, he's going to be more physically fit for hunting, right? Yeah. So, I so, you know, in our evolutionary past, selecting employees or workers on the basis of good lookingness might have actually been a good strategy. Yeah, exactly. I just want to clarify when I, when I say uh, physically fit, I'm referring to like their fitness level as in high muscular percentage and low, low body fat versus their, you know, features. Yeah. Fashion of, choices. Yeah. 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 But I, I do believe there's a biological thing there. So that's my small theory. I don't have any, <laughs> any science to back this. It's just something I thought about. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's refer back to, before we continue, let's refer back to your bio. So we, we went over the first point. The second point is terminally, terminally ill. I know you, you touched a little on that. I don't want to obviously go into detail on that. Sure. I just, you know, just wanted to tell you, you know, sorry to hear about that. Uh, I'm sure that doesn't help with anything. So I'm just going to keep going. Um, yeah. Well, I would say um, the, the one thing I would say is that my, my plan for the, the reason the blog exists is essentially because I got sick, right? In the sense that uh, I always intended to create and publish these writings, but I intended to do it when I was like age, if I was just going to retire like 50 or something and do it then. Mm -hmm. But after having a very long meeting with the doctors, I was just like, oh, okay, you know, Bob, you better get this thing done right now. Cause if you don't do it now, you might never do it. Right. So it's uh, in a, in a roundabout way, it is a good thing simply because it gave me the, the motivation to get this thing done right now and not delay it anymore. Yeah. So that, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. So you say, this is my legacy. Um, how long have you been writing these things? Like when did you start writing about this and wh what do you mean by this is my legacy? So what, what do you plan oh. to leave behind? Sure. So I, I started writing these things right after the, the COVID lockdown started in uh, my area, right? So without doxing my location, I believe it was February or March of this year that the city I'm in locked down. Mm -hmm. And the doctors basically told me, they're like, you know, Bob, if uh, you get COVID, 
it could go very bad for you. So you better lock yourself up. Uh, so I've been locked up basically since the COVID lockdown started, like March. That's when I started writing these things. Um, the 55 essays are the core most important writings. And the Twitter feed is just thoughts that came to me that couldn't neatly be fit into any one of the essays, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what's, what's your goal behind leaving this? Mm. Oh, because well, I know, I know you're not just writing it to kind of put it out there because you mentioned this is my legacy. So it, it must yeah. mean something to you. I just want to <laughs> kind of dive deeper into like what, what you, you're, you think sure. you're leaving behind and. Yeah. So, so I don't, I don't have any children. Right. But if I did have children, right, this is the information I would give them to best prepare them for the environment that exists in America in the year 2020, right? Or re really in any country in the 21st century. Okay. So this is something you would have gave to your children. Yes. Yeah. I don't have kids, but if I did have kids, this is what I would give them. So th this is um, information that was helpful in my life. And my hope is that the people who find it will find it is uh, also helpful in their lives. Okay. And in it, they would find, you know, all the tactics and strategies <laughs> yes. they would need to succeed in life. Yes. So okay. I have a, I, I have, um, I have no motivation to, to hide any strategies or tactics. Yeah. Right. It's not like one of my coworkers, one of my competitors in the financial industry is going to find this and use it against me because you know, I'm not a, I'm not employed anymore just because well, I have enough money to last until death. So you know, I, I'm essentially, I feel like I'm a, yeah, not to sound too egotistical about it, but I feel like I'm a magician and I'm about to exit the stage and right before I exit, you know, I'm explaining all my tricks to you. Yeah. Makes sense, man. And even, let's say even if for, if people were to find it, it's not like people are going to all of a sudden, you know, be very good at all these things and practice them. People that, that, are, that's right. That yeah. That's right. That's right. So um, you could read everything in the 55 essays in maybe a week, right? Or maybe if you just dedicated two days of your life to it, you could do it. But you're not going to be able to master the ability to apply all the strategies and tactics in the real world in two days, right? That can take years, yeah. right? So you, you could read a book about... Uh, how chess is played in two hours, right? Like here are the pawns, here's the mm -hmm. king and the queen, here's how the pieces move. Th that two hours, you can knock it out. It's easy. Y you cannot become a chess grandmaster in two hours, right? That could take 20 years, might never happen. Um, you know, now to be clear, I'm not a, in terms of real world execution, I'm not the best on the planet, Yeah. right? So th the best people on the planet for that are probably you know, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, like people running for president um, who have a very high chance of winning. I'm not in that category, but I am significantly better at manipulation than the average person. Yeah, definitely. So what I was getting at is even if people were to find it, people are generally 
for lack of a better word, lazy. Yes. So for, <laughs> yes. For, I'll give another example. So there's all this content and information about fitness out there and how to be fit and how to stay healthy and how to work out and exercise and eat. And I'm going to say more than half of the United States yeah. don't use we that information at all. Yeah. We still have people who, you know, sleep five hours a night, eat a bunch of sugar, don't work out. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's not lack of information. Like everybody knows exactly eight hours of sleep. Everybody knows you're not supposed to eat a bunch of sugar, but people are still doing it. So yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the best example is half the country is obese. So obviously people are not running to, to find information that's useful and apply in their lives. Yeah. There, there's a lack of, there's a lack of discipline out there, I think is the main thing. It's not a lack of information. For, for many problems, yes, that is true. Maybe not every problem, but for many of them, that's correct. Okay. Fit for fitness, like for your specialty, I'd say definitely that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned that probably the best in the world are going to be politicians. Not, uh, I apologize for interrupting. Go ahead, Omdi. No, no, I was just going to say, like, do you think that that's part of the reason this kind of stuff is more, it's not as mainstream, this kind of information? Hmm. Hmm. Do you mean that people in power have been intentionally concealing this information? Y yes. Yes. Um, I, I'm sure they would like to. Right. So, but I, I don't think they can. And what I mean by that is with, with the internet, I mean, everyone in every first world country has access to a computer, right? So, I mean, even the poorest people, even the, the homeless people in San Francisco have access to computers. You know, they can walk yeah. to a public library and use a computer. So th this information is accessible to everyone or almost everyone. So it's, uh, the information certainly isn't concealed anymore. I mean, the, the book, The 40 Laws of Power sold over a million copies just in the United States. Someone can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but it's very widespread information. Um, so getting the information is not difficult, but real world application is still difficult, right? So 100% of people can read a book on uh, plumbing, right? Like how to manage the water systems for a house. Right? Yeah. So 100% of us can get a book on plumbing. Um, less than 1% of us are actually capable of executing plumbing in the real world, right? That takes a bit more than just reading a book for an hour or two. Yeah. So it's, uh, I think that yes, powerful people, I'm sure they would love if, uh, this information was not readily available, but even if, if it is readily available, just cause you can read the information does not mean you're going to be capable of applying it. Yeah. All right, man. Um, sounds good. So I'm going to move on to, to the next question. Of course. Of course. I have, I pulled up a couple of your tweets that did pretty well on Twitter. Oh I was just going <laughs> to, I was going to read them and, you know, just see if you can maybe expand on them a little bit. Okay. I thought you were about to say, I'm going to read them and you're going to have to explain why you said this horrible thing. But no, <laughs> go on. I'm no, good. man. I mean, a lot of the stuff you, you speak about is controversial, 
but or you know considered bad in in the mainstream media or in the public even but a lot of it if you look at it from a non-biased angle or just from a neutral light it's something that we really do have to think about and really the fact that people are getting mad about it shows that there's some truth behind it if yeah, that makes any sense yeah, yeah yeah so if if you tell someone something and they dislike it and they realize it's false right they they genuinely don't think it's true they will get slightly annoyed uh but if you tell someone something that they dislike and that they subconsciously realize is true they will become enraged by it right so yeah. slight annoyance indicates they don't like what you're saying and they genuinely believe it's false uh outrage indicates they don't like what you're saying and on some subconscious level they realize it's true and they're perhaps quite understandably very unhappy about it right and i just like to give people a disclaimer there are many things that i think are true and that i say that i don't want them to be true right like i um uh, i think it is true that uh cancer is a thing that exists but i'm not happy about that right? i'm not happy to hear there are people suffering from cancer if i could you know eliminate that thing i'd do it in a heartbeat but uh yeah yeah, you know, I just like to give the disclaimer. If I said something that makes you very unhappy, I don't want it to be true. It's just I think it is true. Yeah. So you're you're just shedding light on what you believe to be true, and you know the the truths that people don't want to hear or that <laughs> nobody wants to tell you about. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is a it's it's a good thing. You know, it's you're you're playing a very difficult role, but needed. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. So I'm going to read a tweet here. It says, give me control of the media for 30 days and I, <laughs> <laughs> and I can get the masses to believe anything. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> what inspired this tweet? What inspired that? So some, uh, I assume a lot of the people listening to this have read the book 1984 by George Orwell. Yes, I have right. for sure. Okay. And so something George Orwell said somewhere, maybe in that book, maybe somewhere else, was um the people will believe whatever the media tells them. Right. And so it, it's always you know, keep in mind I spent my adult life in America. So maybe it's different in other countries, but I doubt it. Um it's always amazed me how most people walking around the street will believe pretty much anything the media tells them, right? So you can predict what public opinion on any certain issue will be tomorrow afternoon based on what the media is saying today. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. So, by way of example, I, I'm going to use an example that is not hopefully not going to be politically controversial. Right, because I'll know how uh, left-wing or right-wing your audience is. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. I want to give something that's that I think the media is lying about, but is actually not something most people are emotionally invested in, one way or the other. Okay. Um, so for the in recent decades, say like 2000 to 2020, mainstream sources and the mainstream media. And the U.S. government will tell you that 
the inflation rate in America is like 1% or 2%, something like that. Um, nobody knows what the true rate of inflation is for sure, right? Everyone's just trying to give a guesstimate, um, but it's very important to have an accurate guesstimate of that um, for various financial transactions. So the, all the mainstream sources will tell you that the inflation rate is 1% to 2%. And most Americans walking around on the street believe that um, without question. I think that's a lie. I think the true rate of inflation is something like 5% to 7%, right? So I don't know what the true rate of inflation is, but I think it's significantly higher than what the mainstream is telling you it is. See, isn't that, I, I don't know much about that. So I, I am not the best person to say, but what, isn't that something that's just calculated? Like, don't you just take? Yes. So the, the thing is, inflation is just a, the general trend of prices going up, right? So the price of bananas, oh, okay, okay. the price of milk, the price of uh, video games, you know, whatever you want. Um, so in most countries, most of the time, it is the case that as, as time goes on, prices go up. And that's because as time goes on, usually currency, like the money becomes weaker, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say that today you can buy a barrel of oil for $100, but tomorrow, if you want to buy that same barrel of oil, it's $200, right? The, the strength of your currency got cut in half overnight, right? Does that make sense? Yes. So in calculating inflation, um, right, generally speaking, most people do not like inflation, right? They, they, don't, they don't like the idea of prices going up. They don't like the idea that, you know, the currency they're carrying around in their wallet is becoming weaker with each passing second. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's viewed as a bad thing, um, generally speaking. And the inflation rate is something that is calculated based on you track the prices of many different products over the course of a year. And you look at what was the percentage increase in the price of each product and you average all of those. And that's how you get an inflation rate. Does that yep. make sense? Yep. Yep. So the, here's where the that doesn't sound controversial. That sounds like a matter of mathematical fact. Uh, here's where the controversy is. What products should be included in that list of products we're tracking? Right. Uh, okay. So, if you track inflation based solely on the price of video games, you will find that inflation is actually negative because video games over the past 20 years have become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, right? Um, if you track the inflation rate based on the price of housing, right, say based on the price of a, a studio apartment or just a family house in the suburbs, right? over the past 20 years, you will get an inflation rate that is very high because right? housing has been skyrocketing in price, right? So the, the way the mainstream tracks inflation is by a list of products called the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, mm -hmm. right? And so the CPI includes things like food, right? So the price of bananas and strawberries and a chicken, right? Or a hamburger, something like that. Um, the CPI, from my understanding, does not include 
housing prices, right? And so because this, and housing prices have been skyrocketing in the past like 20 years and really the past 50 years. So by not including housing inside the CPI, the CPI is as a matter of habit, uh, underestimating inflation. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So if you were a government official and you're calculating, and I would tell you as a mathematician, I would be like, you tell me what you want the inflation rate to be. And I (laughs) will tell you what they include. (laughs) I'll give you a list of products. I'm like, if you calculate inflation based on these products, that's what the inflation rate will be. Right. So if you calculate inflation based on only food, the inflation rate is like 1%. It's like very low. Video games, inflation is negative because video games are going down in price. Uh, housing, the inflation rate is super high, right? So it's, um, right, all, all I'm saying is m- m- the mainstream media and government agencies, when they give you an inflation rate, that's the CPI. And most Americans walking around the street accept that as fact. Yeah, yeah. And my opinion is, well, it is a fact that's what the CPI is, but the CPI is not an honest measurement of the true rate of inflation yeah right? and well i was one I, of those guys because i had no idea about any of this before you just told yeah. me so <laughs> well i i would say the average person who's like say 40 years old walking around america right now right they, they don't calculate inflation rates right they yeah. don't really understand what the cpi is but i do think the average person who's like 40 or 50 understands that in recent years food prices have been basically stable but housing prices have skyrocketed. Like, oh, yeah. like poor people who are like renting or whatever, like they understand, they're like, oh my God, every year goes by, the rent's just getting higher and higher and higher, right? So th- they don't understand these economic terms, but they understand the concept that, yeah, the rent has been going up in recent years and my wages have not been going up, right? So yeah. they're hurting. Uh, they, they can't quite articulate why they're hurting, but they get the sense that, yeah, things are going bad and the people in power are not being honest about how bad things are for uh, the, say, a majority of people or the poor. Yeah, people. yeah, definitely. No, I, I mean, apologize if that was an over top, over the top, like economics lesson. But no, 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 it was good, good to good to know because I didn't really know about that, and I'm sure a lot of other people didn't either. So now you just dropped another another good uh, knowledge well, bomb on us. Well, one thing I would tell you is that um without revealing my identity like i know I, I know a lot of guys who work at hedge funds in new york city right mm-hmm. and so they make financial or economic models when they're deciding what investments to make right and so the inflation rate is something they have to put into their models when they're deciding whether or not to buy or sell a certain stock right mm-hmm. so the inflation rate they're putting in their models is not 1% or 2% theirs is like 4 5 6% Okay. Right. So th- they understand the true rate of inflation is yeah. higher than what the U.S. government is telling you it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. For sure. Very interesting, man. That's crazy. It's crazy to think about. But yeah, going back to the tweet, I, I mean, I 100%, <laughs> I 100% agree with it. Um, you know, I just wanted to to get a little more out of you based on yeah. that, especially, especially this year, where you know, obviously there was a nationwide pandemic and lockdowns and 
all people were doing is sitting there and watching the media for months and months. So this was a very important tweet and yeah, very important idea to think about. Yeah, and w one thing I would say is um, government officials have a motive to lie downwards about what the inflation rate is, right? And the motive is this. Um, if they're honest about how high inflation is, people or the, the masses will blame them, right? And then they might get voted out of office, right? So like senators and Congress people, they don't want to be like, oh yeah, inflation is really high. It's like five or 6%, right? If they're honest about that reality, uh, the voters will blame them and they might get voted out of office and they don't want that. So they're just like, oh, don't worry. The inflation rate's only one or 2%. Everything is fine. Um, so, so there, there is, there is motive to be dishonest about this, right? It's not just a, it's not an error of incompetence or a mathematical error, error. It's a, uh, it's a moral failing. Right? Oh yeah. I, I, I think, no, they're not, they're not bad at math. They're good at math and they are intentionally lying because they don't want to be blamed for all the inflation that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Of course. It's, it's never that they didn't know. For, for anything say, a major, I would say. I would say sometimes it is they didn't know, right? Sometimes I'm willing to believe, oh, they didn't know, you know, it was an honest mistake. I'm just saying with this specific thing, I do not mm -hmm. think it was an honest mistake. Like, no, they knew and they lied because they didn't want to be blamed. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. All right. So I pulled up another tweet here, which I think is important. It says, I would rather die than live and be powerless. Oh, fuck. Death is nothing. <laughs> That's... To so... live and be powerless is to die every day. So yeah. the reason I picked this one is because obviously we all know we're going to die at yes. some point. But for you, you know, you, that, you, that you, you, yeah. you have a kind of a sight and end. So I just wanted to see your take on this and kind of hoping you can expand a little more on it. Sure. So when it says uh, it's better to die than to live and be powerless, right? When I say that, I'd, I'd like to be clear about what I do not mean, right? Okay. What I'm not trying to do is encourage uh, anyone to take their own life, right? Oh, like, yeah, it, of course. It, I, I don't it, think it, anyone would interpret it that okay. way. Okay. Yeah. Like if you're alive and you're powerless, Right, your your life sucks for whatever reason. You have no control over your circumstances. You uh, you live towards the bottom of the hierarchy. Right, you're low status. You're poor. Right, your your life sucks. Right, okay. I'm not trying to encourage you to end your life. That is not my intention. Um, my that tweet is targeted more at people who are, in terms of their quality of life, more in the middle. Like they're, they're not in hell, so they're not working tirelessly to escape, right? Um, it's more like their life is fairly decent, but it kind of sucks. Mm -hmm. It's like they're, they're miserable, but it's a comfortable misery, mm -hmm. right? My, my motive is to, to wake them up and tell them like, take action right now. Yeah, it's more right. of a motivating tweet than any yeah, my, tweet. My, I don't want to be sending people the message like, give up and die. I'm trying to send the message you know, wake up and whatever tools, whatever strategies are available to you that you can use to conceivably make things better, use them. Yeah, definitely. 
So when you say death is nothing, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, I, I, not to get too religious, but my, my expectation is that after death, I'm going to get a dial tone. Yeah. Right. Like if you do you remember what life was like before you were born, mm-hmm. right. Or before your parents conceived you, like yeah. there, there was nothing there. Right. My expectation is that life after death is going to be very much like that. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, if I wake up to hellfire, I'll send you guys. <laughs> but uh... Yeah, no, that makes sense, man. I mean, even even for religious people, that's how it's going to be for a very long time, I think, before anything happens. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so to live and be powerless is to die every day. I, I kind of understand that. Well, I, all, I... all that means is that, like being a person who's alive walking around like just being powerless is miserable like it sucks yeah. so similar to how dying sucks like dying in a car crash i assume is not yeah, fine. Yeah. right so you know you, if you're powerless you're gonna be miserable so if you are powerless or if your life is on track for you will be powerless uh any strategies or tactics available that might help you use them don't don't shy away from using them definitely use them Okay. You'll thank me. <laughs> it's... All right. I'm going to ask you a couple harder questions, I guess, or kind of difficult to answer just okay. because, you know. Um, so now that, you know, your life is kind of coming towards its end, uh, I feel weird saying that, but. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, what do you think the meaning of life is? Like, what's huh. the point of all this shit? Uh, it's not a light question, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I I would say the, the meaning of life is to have as many happy days as possible and as few miserable days as possible. I like that. Right. And which is to say life is meaningless. So do whatever, just enjoy yourself as much as possible. Do whatever will make you happiest in the long term. Um, Something else I would say, and I apologize if I'm uh, extending the topic a bit here, but uh, oh man, sis, go go for it. If uh, if ever there is a trade-off between quality of life and quantity of life, I would tell you prioritize quality, right? Meaning, I'd rather have fifty good years than a hundred trash years. Yeah. Right. So if you're alive for fifty years and you know great physical health, high energy, you're happy for 50 years, and then 51st birthday, you get hit by a bolt of lightning and you drop dead, that's good, right? That's a good life. Um, if you're alive for 100 years and you're miserable the whole time, oh my God, that's, that's terrible, you know, so. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, can, I can see that. I can see that perspective. Yeah, because, you know, I, I like I like what you answered though about the meaning of life. Just have as many good days as you can, and you know, do do what makes you happy, and just live life. You know, enjoy enjoy it because it's short. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I actually I I will have to disagree with you there. About what? Uh, you said life is short. Yeah, man. Uh, days go I, by I, quick. Yes. Well, I, I think, uh, 
I think, how do I say this? I think life is long, right? And so I would say be, uh, be very thoughtful for the sort of life with what sort of life you uh, arrange for yourself because you're going to have to live with the consequences for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And, right? that, so, and, that, and that light, yes, I understand exactly what you're saying. Don't just go by, you know, doing whatever because life is short, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm saying is be, um, but if you think about 2020, the year 2020, let's say 2020 has been up until this point, it's been 11 months, right? So on paper, 11 months is nothing as a matter of lived experience. The past 11 months has been an eternity. Yeah. Right. For most, <laughs> for, for most Americans. Yep. So. <laughs> All right. So let me ask you this. You said that, you know, that the stuff that you wrote is kind of the stuff you would have left behind for your kids if you had them. Give us like a few main pointers or, you know, let's mm. say you didn't write these articles and, you know, you, you were writing a few points in a notebook just to pass along. Like what, what recommendations or advice or things would you give to people? Hmm. Hmm. So like the most important points, I guess I would say. Yeah. So in terms of telling people how they should live their lives, it's, it's very difficult to give good advice on what to do because different individuals are going to need different things to be happy. Yeah. Um, but I can certainly give people advice on what not to do. Like don't do this stuff. Um, yeah. That would be great. So and some of this is stuff not to do that the mainstream is going to tell you to do, right? So this is going to be advice that I sense most people have not heard before. Um, the, the first thing not to do is do not, as a general guideline, if you're a young person in America or really anywhere on the planet, say you're under the age of 40 today, um, do not listen to the advice of your elders. Uh, do, do not assume that your parents and your grandparents know what they're talking about or, or that they are a good source of information about our world. And the reason for that is um, most people stop updating their mental model of what reality looks like somewhere around age 30, right? And for most of human history, that was not a problem. Because for most of human history, the pace of change in terms of what daily life was like was very low, right? So what daily life is like for most people in the year 500 BC and 600 AD and 1200 AD and 1776 AD, right? Daily life for most people did not change much at all in that time period, right? Um, but... So for, for all that time, listening to the advice of your parents and grandparents was a great idea because the, the environment they had to deal with when during their life is very similar to the environment you're going to have to deal with, right? Because very little has changed. So yeah, listening to the advice of grandma and grandpa, that's, that's, good advi that's a good idea. Um, but today, and for the past 200 years, and especially the past 100 years, uh, the pace of change has been lightning fast. Right. So um, 
using some of my own family members as, as an example. My, my grandfather was 30 years old in the year 1950, right? Uh, my father was 30 years old in the year 1980. And without doxing my age, I had to deal with the environment, uh, the modern environment of America in the 90s, 1990 to 2020, right? So uh, my grandfather and my father and the environment I have to deal with, right? those are three completely different environments, right? Yeah. So my father like he should not be taking advice from my grandfather because my grandfather knows basically nothing about the environment he had to deal with. And I should not be taking advice from my father because he knows almost nothing about the environment I have to deal with, right? So if you're living in the year like 1200 AD and your grandparents were farmers and your parents are farmers and your job is to be a farmer and farming techniques haven't changed in 3000 years, yeah, listen to your elders, it's good advice. But you know, if you're a modern day, say 25 year old American man, like your grandfather was working in a factory. Um, your dad is an accountant and you're a software engineer, right? Do not listen to your father and grandfather because all the advice they give you is going to be either inaccurate or uh, it used to be accurate, but now it's outdated. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a good one. I, I would agree with that for sure. So not, not to, not to cast dispersions on like any like nine year olds who are listening to this, but <laughs> no, I mean, it's good to take, to take the wisdom that they do provide, but you have to know kind of what, what to take and what to, what to leave at the table. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would just say the, uh, the, for the past 100 years, the pace of change has been fast enough. So such that, every generation has to deal with an environment that is very different than the environment their parents faced. Oh yeah. And it's, ex it's exponentially Increasing. getting faster and faster. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the human tendency to not, how do I, like people's, uh, the speed with which people update their mental model of reality is fastest when they are young and it just gets slower as the age, right? So yeah, a five-year-old yeah. five is updating their model of reality like every 30 seconds and mm -hmm. a 20-year-old is doing it like once a month and a 40-year-old is doing it not at all, right? And so for most of human history, that was okay because by the time you hit like 16, you basically knew everything you needed to know and the environment wasn't going to change. But like in our modern world, that is not, if, if you operate that way, like you are going to be left behind, right? Not updating your mental model of reality, right? Not learning is, it, it is now a, that is a, a form of laziness uh, that we can no longer afford. Yeah, definitely. So what, what other points would you give other than mm. the not listening to the old uh, mm. outdated advice? <laughs> huh. So a second piece of advice that is the mainstream is not going to tell you this um, for reasons that should be obvious. Um, so the, the mainstream tends to tell children, at least in America, just like don't use drugs. Like drugs are bad. Don't use them. Um, 
I actually disagree with that. And to be clear on how, um, so I, I am staunchly against drug use for the sake of uh, recreation or for pleasure, right? So drinking a bunch of alcohol so that you can get drunk and enjoy it or uh, doing lines of cocaine so that you can get a dopamine hit, I, I would strongly advise against that, right? Because it's just gonna, it's gonna wreck your health, it's gonna wreck your performance. And if uh, you have a certain genetic predisposition, there's a high chance you'll get addicted and it could you know, permanently ruin your life. So you know, I am against recreational drug use. Uh, what I would say is you should be willing to use drugs for the sake of performance enhancement. Right. And uh, Hamdi, is it okay if I dive deeper into this topic? I don't want to be. No, definitely, man. Okay. Go for it. Okay. Go for it. Um, so, you know, at minimum, I would advise people to be open to using small amounts of caffeine, like say just a cup of coffee in the morning, right? That, you know, definitely enhances performance for many people. Um, now going beyond the obvious, like drink coffee, if you want to, uh, I would say, at the elite level of every profession, the use of performance enhancing drugs is very common. Yeah. Um, yeah and this is something that the mainstream definitely does not talk about. Um, yeah. I, if I you're, say, oh, go ahead. If you're in, if you're kind of in a certain field, you, you know this already though, like in, in, <laughs> yes. in the, in the sports world, yep. anyone yep. that knows yeah. anything knows that the top, elite athletes are all using performance enhancement drugs yes it's very it's yeah. very common used in you know obviously in bodybuilding and and stuff yeah. like that but also in like mixed martial arts like the ufc is so many so many like performance enhancement drug users that's yep. that's a very common thing and then yep. even in school like not even the top schools just you know, at any college or university now, I guarantee that at least 25% at a minimum are taking drugs like Adderall or Ritalin to, to give them the edge over the rest of the class. Yep. Yep. So diving a bit deeper into that in terms of which drugs are used in which professions and why. Um, it, my observation is that in Professions like finance and law and sales, um, the use of uh, TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, is very common, right? So drugs like uh, testosterone cypionate, right? And so th those are drugs, I'm using cypionate as an example, drugs that are biochemically identical to the testosterone that a man's body produces naturally. So you're not putting anything into your body, if you're a man, that your body doesn't already have a lot of. You're just increasing the amount of it that is there, right? So let's say without the use of testosterone cypionate, your body might have 500 nanograms per deciliter of testosterone. And after injecting testosterone cypionate, you're getting yourself to the point of having 1,000 nanograms per deciliter of testosterone. Um, yeah, and the, use, the reason the use of TRT, uh, testosterone, is common is just because it, it increases your baseline 
energy levels, which makes it easier to do difficult work for long hours, right? Um, in finance in particular, uh, testosterone also increases risk tolerance or uh, comfort with risk-taking or bearing risk. Um, and so if you want to do the work in finance effectively, you have to have a risk tolerance that is, say, higher than average, right? So many of the men in finance are on TRT. And one of the reasons for that is it increases the risk tolerance, which makes them more comfortable with doing the risky work they're doing on a somewhat regular basis. Um, going beyond that, but backtracking that, the main benefit of TRT is just more energy, right? So instead of getting tired after eight hours of work, you will get tired after 10 hours of work, right? Which is a, that's a significant advantage. Um, now, I like to give the disclaimer, please do not be using any drug I mentioned without uh, the supervision of a doctor. Right. Yeah. So before you continue, essentially what you're saying is... Sorry, mate, if that was a, a bunch of stuff. No, no, no. I'm just going to make, I guess, kind of a little joke is essentially what you're saying is we don't need cocaine. We just need testosterone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, well, I, I would say the, the energy you boost you get from testosterone is very subtle and it's very, it's very long lasting, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's now sample size of one, I'm just speaking from my own experience, but you know, I'm on TRT. And so before TRT and after TRT, it doesn't feel like you're on a drug. It just feels like say before TRT, I could do eight hours of work before feeling brain dead. Now I can do 10 hours of work and then I'll feel brain dead. Right. Yeah. So it's just, I would say, yeah, it's just even like though, that. even though all like most or all supplements are drugs, I, I wouldn't really label it as a drug. I would label it more oh, as a supplement yeah. because it's something that's produced naturally in your body. And that's usually what yes. people refer to as supplements. Yes. So, so adding to that with uh, testosterone cypionate, let's say, your body is not going to build up a tolerance to it because it's something very similar to the natural occurring testosterone in your body, right? So it's not like this week you needed to inject 100 milligrams and next week you needed 110 and next week you needed 150 and next week 200 to get the same effect, right? Whereas with true drugs, things that are not naturally produced by your body, like cocaine, let's say, you will need to use higher and higher doses to get the same effect that you originally had, which is very dangerous because that is what very often leads to overdose and death, right? So testosterone cypionate is a lot safer than cocaine in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, expanding on that, or just moving on to the next thing on the list is... Um, testosterone and hormone engineering aside, in finance, law, and sales, um, I mean, the hours are very long, right? So everyone's working like 60 hours a week. So like something like 12 hours a day, five days a week, that's fairly normal. Um, the use of stimulants is common. So stimulants, not cocaine, not something that strong, but things like modafinil, uh, Ritalin, Adderall, that is fairly common 
from the men I've worked with in finance specifically, and also people I have to some degree worked with or had contact with in law and sales, right? Um, and I would put, using stimulants like that, I would put as being more, uh, that's gonna be more intense than using testosterone cypionate and also come with greater health risks. So please do talk to a doctor. Yeah, that's definitely always, uh, you know, do your own research and your own consulting before doing anything like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, ch changing professions. So in, in finance, law, and sales, um, the hard part is that the work is very stressful and you have very long hours, but the work does not actually require extremely high levels of creativity, right? So in finance, for example, for most roles in the financial industry, you, you just have to be able to do like fourth grade level math very quickly in your head for hours on end, right? Something like that. So stimulants are helpful for that, but there, there are professions where the work is more creative in nature, right? So professions like uh, engineering, particularly the, the high levels of engineering where you're doing research and development to create new technology, right? So for professions like that, many of the men there I've noticed have, they, they use psychedelics to enhance create, creative thinking. So many of them will uh, microdose LSD, right? So I know plenty of very good software engineers in America who microdose LSD before doing the most difficult parts of their software coding. Yeah. Some of the, some of my favorite thinkers or speakers that I like to listen to all publicly said that they've microdosed or not even microdosed have experimented with uh, psychedelics. Yes. Yeah. So artists, musicians, uh, engineers trying to create new technology, scientists trying to make a new discovery. But anything that's very creative in nature, uh, psychedelics, specifically microdosing LSD may help you. Yeah. Uh, even even, uh, okay. even finance guys, like uh, one of one of your finance guys, uh, Naval, he, on yeah. the Joe Rogan yeah. podcast, <laughs> he, he mentioned that he experimented with psychedelics. Yes. Yeah. No, no, I would like to give people the caveat. Uh, testosterone cypionate is legal with a prescription. Mm -hmm. in america uh the stimulants i listed modafinil ritalin adderall those are all legal in america if you have a, a prescription from a doctor um lsd is illegal right it's illegal the same way cocaine and heroin are illegal so i'm not uh, i'm giving a disclaimer i'm not technically advising you to do that i'm simply making you aware that it exists yeah i believe psilocybin which is uh magic mushrooms is legal now in uh Colorado or Denver um I'm Oregon? not Oregon yep I'm not 100% sure on that but I did see something about it being legal there now okay yeah just as a side note yeah but it. continue please um for performance enhancing drugs that's basically all I had just testosterone sipionate is common in finance law and sales 
uh, stimulants like modafinil, Ritalin, and Adderall are common to finance law and sales. And in creative professions like very difficult engineering work, uh, microdosing LSD is common. Th that's the extent of my knowledge if, for at least the, the corporate world. Sounds good, man. So is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap up this conversation? <laughs> um, just the last piece of information I'd like to add is uh, the total writings I've created are the, uh, the 55 essays plus everything you find on the Twitter feed. Um, to get that on the Corporate Machiavelli website itself, uh, there's an archives page with links to the 55 essays. Um, each essay has a PDF you can download from the top of each essay page. So, you know, just in case the website crashes, you know, after I'm dead and gone or anything, you know, I'd recommend you, you know, go to each essay page, download the PDF. And uh, regarding the stuff on the Twitter feed, there's a page called Twitter on the website. If you go to that, there are Excel files of everything I ever sent out on Twitter, right? So I've been on Twitter for two months now. So there's two Excel files, one for all the tweets in October, 2020, and one for all the tweets in November, 2020. That's all. So 55 PDFs and those two Excel files, that's the extent of my writings. And uh, that's freely available for anyone who wants to take it. Sounds good, man. I'll include links to all that stuff in the show notes in the description and uh, people will be able to access it there as well. Perfect, man. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, uh, man, uh, we can do this again sometime. It has been a pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. I would definitely be happy to do another episode anytime. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been, it's been uh, great to have you on. Of course, man. And uh, to everyone in America, please uh, stay safe out there. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Take care, Amdi. Take care. Bye-bye.